identity fraud. According to Javelin Strategy and Research, incidents of identity fraud saw a drop in 2010, but expenses associated with identity theft and fraud nearly doubled. How can incidents decrease and expenses increase? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with James Van Dyke, President and Founder of Javelin, and Steve Schwartz, Executive Vice President of Consumer Services for Intersections, which partnered with Javelin for the study. James, Javelin this week releases results from its annual identity fraud survey report. How long has Javelin produced this report, and how is the information for the report collected? Tracy, this is actually an eight-year study. The first year of the study was actually deployed by the Federal Trade Commission, and we wrote a report on the results. We took that study over and have now been doing it for seven subsequent years, so it's an eight-year longitudinal study. And I'm going to kind of break the questions up between you and Steve, but I'd like to start with you, James. The focus of the report is ID fraud. How do you define ID fraud, and does it include identity theft as well as other types of fraud? Tracy, that's a great question. There's so much confusion around that, so I'm so happy you opened with that. We use the definitions that were actually established by Congress and the Federal Trade Commission and used throughout law enforcement. Some bankers don't like the term identity theft, and frankly, we're not so crazy about it either because it means so many different things to many different people. So I'd say let me just go into the FTC definitions that are used widely throughout law enforcement that we follow throughout our study. So we talk about any transaction that involves uh, impersonation by a criminal of some individual where an actual transaction was, was conducted. So think about new account fraud where the criminal establishes a new account. Sometimes the bankers call that identity theft. Sometimes they call it something else. We also include existing account fraud. And there, there could be card fraud within there. So there's a wide variety of industry terms. But I think the, the best way to agree on a, on a standard definition so we're all on the same page is think about criminals taking over someone's identity to open new accounts, which is sometimes called identity theft, as well as getting a hold of existing account credentials, whether that's online or through traditional channels. And then going back to how some of the information was collected for the report, James, I'd just like to ask, when it comes to breaking all of these different types of fraud down, how did you work with financial institutions to ensure you were getting the right kind of information? Well, we actually don't get the information from financial institutions at all. We sometimes do get information from financial institutions, but I think what gives this report such tremendous credibility is that we don't go to the banks at all to get this data. Well, we certainly learn a great deal from bankers because uh, when we build the definitions and, and understand how they fight fraud every day and how they work with partners like Intersections to go into the blind spots like there are against new account identity fraud, but we actually go directly to consumers and we call them on a random basis using a nationally representative uh, buildup of of individuals within the United States that we reach by telephone. So we get low-income individuals, people who are not on the Internet, and, of course, people who are on the Internet going out to over 5,000 people every every year to, to find out what their experience is in existing accounts and new account fraud. And I'd like to move on to you, Steve. Could you give us a little background on how you view ID fraud and then perhaps give us a little background on intersections and how you worked with Javelin for this particular study? Sure. Our, our viewpoint on um, ID fraud is very similar to um, Javelin's, and that's you know, one of the reasons we've been partners for a number of years to provide this survey. Um, you know, for us, 
Um, it starts with an ID theft, which is some theft of information, which may or may not ever become fraudulent. But as soon as a criminal does anything with that information that creates a financial situation for a consumer, that's from something as simple as taking your credit card number and charging a fraudulent transaction to it, all the way to, as Jim said, opening up new accounts and creating synthetic identities, all of that is encompassed in the term identity fraud. Um, Intersections has been in, in this business since 1996. Um, we've been providing consumers with the information that they, they need and can use to monitor things that are going on in their financial life that they might not be able to otherwise get their hands on in a speedy manner or sometimes at all. Uh, because the only way to, to tell that you're a, a victim of fraud, uh, other than having an institution that has, you know, said you're uh, in debt to them when you're not, is, is to catch it up front and see your information as it's being used, and hopefully as quickly as possible, so that you can um, you can shut it down very quickly, and, and then the, the consequences are not quite as bad. Because you know, we like to tell people, you actually can't prevent identity theft. You can protect yourself against it, and you can. Um, do things to make sure that you catch any instances early, but you know there's so much information out there, it's almost impossible to prevent. Sure. And James, I'd like to go back to you. As I noted in the introduction, the report reveals that while the number of ID fraud-related incidents affecting U.S. consumers actually decreased from 2009 to 2010, the expenses associated with ID fraud recovery have increased. How is that possible? Yeah, that's another great question because, it, you know, it is the surprising uh, divergence of direction. So, in short, as you pointed out, there's less fraudulent transactions being committed in individuals' names in the U.S. over the last year as opposed to the previous year, and yet the average individual in the U.S. paid more. There was a sharp increase about of about a million dollars total in more out-of-pocket costs being paid for by individuals. And these are people that will choose to leave their bank, that will have a worsened uh, image of their bank, and, and, and it's, so it's very costly. So the reason that that's possible is because of a very significant shift inside the numbers within the types of identity fraud that's being conducted. So remembering that identity fraud or fraudulent transactions committed in somebody else's name uh, it's a combination of new account fraud and existing account fraud. Well, these each of these kinds of fraudulent transactions have unique uh, um, cost impacts to individuals. So there are fewer fraudulent transactions going on within, uh, for example, credit card transactions that the indiv honest individual had legitimately established. And those are typically the more innocuous crimes. They have a lowest the lowest cost. However, there were more fraudulent transactions as a proportion of the total that make up what we call new account fraud or what some in the industry sometimes call identity theft. So those typically have the worst impact in terms of out-of-pocket cost, as Steve talked about, resolution time and, and so forth. So there were more, as a proportion of the total, more of the worst crimes remaining and fewer of the, the, the most innocuous crimes remaining. Now, I'm going to jump around here just for a moment and move to a question that I was actually going to pose later during the interview, but let's go ahead and talk about this new account fraud and some of the losses. New account fraud, as you've noted, uh, the losses associated with that kind of topped in the report relative to other forms of fraud. Can you give us some idea about what's causing new account fraud? Why is it difficult to detect and why is it exceptionally damaging to consumers? We're seeing more new account fraud, we believe, 
because there's, uh, as Steve mentioned, there's more records floating out there. What's interesting is, is to see some of the trends that often go unnoticed in, within the industry is there actually were fewer data breaches. But what we see are criminals, we believe, really digging in to try to use whatever information is remaining, even with fewer data breaches, to commit these frauds. And one thing that contributed to that was a, a higher proportion of friendly fraud cases. So sadly, more criminals who were uh, preying on individuals that were close to them, friends or family members, which is sad to see. And we also saw that there were a higher percentage of cases where older Americans who were recent uh, entrants on the social media bandwagon are, are failing to take advantage of privacy settings on social media. So it's possible that some of that information, which could be oh, your pet's name, uh, your birth date, things like that are, are being revealed, which could contribute to more new account fraud. You know, there's another, there's another piece in there, too, that makes it harder to detect, which is as you knowingly sign up at new banks for bank account information, many people, um, and if they don't, they should, set up alerts on their accounts so that when actions occur on their account, for instance, a withdrawal over $500, a foreign transaction, they get alerts from their, their bank. You know, when somebody is opening a new account in your name, not to, to state the obvious, but you're not getting alerted. So you don't know until something bad has happened that you have a new account in your name. And that's, that's the other reason it takes longer for to detect that kind of crime. Yeah, and that's a great point, Steve. And I actually had a question here for you that related to the lag that consumers have when it comes to when a fraudulent incident occurs and when they're detecting it. In 2009, the average ID theft incident was identified within 59 days. But in 2010, ID theft took longer on average to identify, and now it's taking about 68 days to catch. Do you attribute that delay to the point that you just mentioned about the fact that they're not getting alerts and perhaps maybe we depend on those alerts too much? Well, I do. It's a combination of things. Um, so the fact that there is the, the actual pure credit card fraud is lower um, is, is the other side of that coin because we get alerts to that because we set up those alerts on our account. So, you know, I may have something on, on an alert on my account that says if more than $250 is taken out at one point in time, alert me. So that, that makes the detection time much faster, um, whereas on these new accounts you don't have those kind of settings. So, yes, I absolutely think that's the reason why that, that number has changed like that. And, James, what's your perspective? You know, I think there's uh, more individuals need to be notified, uh, need to have advanced notification methods using a lot of new technology, but it's difficult right now, and individuals can't get the information that they often want, as we see from some of our separate consumer research, that individuals want to take a more active role in their identity, but it's tough to roll out the new technology that makes that possible, so we end up with this glaring blind spot where individuals just can't get real-time information, they can't set controls easily when they go to another country or are not in another country and don't want to have transactions happen there. So what we see is sometimes easy-to-use technology that hasn't yet caught up to consumers' desire to stay on top of their personal identity records. And as a result, you have these blind spots remaining, and criminals, uh, bottom line, are sometimes able to move more quickly than the total of banks, law enforcement, and the individual identity holders. Now, James, I'd like to start with you, and then Steve will move move to you. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the trends that stood out based on the historical data. Now, you've said that this particular study has been published for the last seven years. This will be the eighth year. So you've got a lot of historical data to, to kind of do some comparisons there. Relative to some of those previous year's results, what stands out the most? 
one, one thing we found very interesting was this uh, uh, much more of a confirmation of something that was just a, a hunch a few years ago, and that is, uh, uh, first of all, the good news is while identity fraud, fraudulent transactions within both new accounts and existing accounts, it has a very, very slow decline since this was announced, you know, leapt onto the scene as the fastest growing crime in America, is what, you know, what some of the headlines read in 2003, the first year that the FTC did this study that we have since continued. So every year now, it, it seems like we're getting a, or we're seeing about a, a tenth of a percentage point decrease if you take away the last couple of years. But what we see is a strong correlation over the last couple of years to uh, tr to markers of economic health, and what was most shocking was to see how retail sales le uh, levels are almost a perfect inverse correlation. And in short, what that means is that when there's less retail spending, there's more identity fraud, and it implies that as criminals, uh, some of whom are right here in the U.S. and 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 then there's all of course a highly organized criminal element that's in the cyber realm that could be operating on the other side of the world. That as these people work together in these these crimes, there's always two crimes in every identity fraud: steal the data or access the data, and then fraudulently transact with the data. So these are complicated and personal crimes, and so we're seeing a correlation that. As you get worsened economic health, you get more identity fraud and vice versa. And Steve? Um, you know, for for me, I look at some of the, I, I went back and looked and, you know, it started going back to basics. You know, criminals are still using the basic PII that is out there on, your, on, on people, you know, name, address, social security number. Um, they're getting it in more sophisticated ways, but, but that kind of information floating out there is what's really um, helping them perpetuate these crimes because in, in the end, that's kind of all you need to set up a, a financial account somewhere. Um, and once you have that, and if you pair that with some of the, the social activity, as, as James said, there's not you know, a bunch in here on that, but just to, you know, intuitively, people have things out there like their pet's name and their mother's maiden name. And, you, know, you put all that together, and it's relatively easy. Consumers need to be, you know, more aware and more vigilant of of the information that's out there and who they're giving it to. So, to me, as I look at the trends, that's one of the things that I, I picked up on is that it's still sort of the basic information that is just causing all the trouble. Now, James, I'd like to go back to you, and then Steve, if you feel that you'd like to answer this question, by all means, please step in. But I'd like to know, when we look at the findings, what does it tell us about lacking fraud detection measures that are currently in place? One of the challenges that we have in fraud detection is that it's difficult for highly motivated individuals to get the information that they so crave to be able to stay on top of what's going on with their identity record, with a potential fraudulent new account opening, or potential unauthorized activity within an existing account, like a bank account or a credit card account or some other crucial account. And individuals just can't get the information that, that we see from our separate research that they so desire in a very easy to use way. And but of course this this uh, practice of being able to give individuals, the person who's who have these fraudulent transactions conducted within using their identity, it's very difficult for bankers in a changing technology realm with social media and mobile and, and new methods of authentication and criminals e evolving their methods all the time. It's really tough to let 
amidst all the um, all the change, just to give people that control. So what I see as our opportunity is to give people the control they want, really focus on usability, focus on education. That's really the trend that I see this report pointing out the opportunity for. So from our point of view, you know, we have, a, we have somewhat of more of the, the consumer point of view. Um, uh, it goes back to um, it's a partnership between the financial institutions and the consumers. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I've seen any hard stats, but um, there is a significant amount of identity fraud that is a result of things that happen at a, at a bank and a financial institution. They, they absolutely need to do um, better job identity, uh, um, verifying people's identities before they open accounts for them and issue credit, et cetera. But on the other side, you know, with the proliferation of malware and phishing attacks and people transacting and doing business online and not protecting their computers and machines, the consumers have a responsibility as well. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of the um, advertising around zero liability um, sometimes creates zero accountability in consumers. And I, and I think that we as consumers have a responsibility to make sure that the email that we're reading is legitimate or that we have on our computers the software protection necessary to keep um, malware and viruses off our machines so that somebody can't steal all our information while I'm innocently typing my banking information into my browser. Um, and then couple that with, as James said, you know, the ability to get the information into the consumer's hands, you know, that is, and that's one of the things we do. And, you know, there are both commercial and non-commercial methods to do that. And um, I think that both are viable and, and consumers can choose what, what they think is the best way to go about protecting themselves. Steve, if I may just add on something that, that to integrate with your message, uh, that one of the challenges we see in all this new technology and these great consumer personal solutions that banks can be offering and information that consumers is naturally gravitating toward is we have more uh, users getting more empowerment through new technology and mobile, social media, all that stuff, more people doing online banking, that what I see evolving are like twin silos where you get banks that are using great back-end technology, absolutely vital stuff like fraud filters, neural nets, back-end authentication, so many things that go on every time a legitimate transaction happens that the consumer isn't even aware of. It's all part of frictionless fraud. And that's all great. And then you have all this new um, uh, multiple types of consumer-adopted solutions like, like identity-protective services and people signing up for online banking alerts and all those things. And what we really see, though, is that rarely a connection or an integration between those two and what I believe the future will hold around detection, tracing back to your original question, is that consumer detection and bank detection will be best when we integrate the back-end solutions with the solutions that consumers are already gravitating toward. Yeah, that's a great response, James, and it actually kind of answers one of the questions I was going to pose later, and that is, how can consumer education efforts be improved? And it sounds like we're, the industry's doing maybe all that it can when it comes to consumer education. It's just going to come to more of those integrated solutions that will actually help to take us to the next level. Yeah, the, actually, it's interesting because the, the industry is doing a number of things. There's, I think on the education front, there's always, always more they can do, but they have to step forward and they have, you know, um, like ITAC, the Identity Theft Assistance Corporation, which is sponsored by the banks, who is there for education and also for resolution. Um, we are also um, helping sponsor um, something called the Identity Theft Council, which is a local 
um, community roots-based organization that, that will help with education and resolution at the community bank level. And, and it's all of these different kinds of efforts that, that take place through both um, communities and community banks and also the larger banks. Um, and they just need to get the message out to more people to make them more aware of the problem and the problems that can occur if you are a victim help get people to be more vigilant. Because the banks, you know, as I, as, as I think we've both said a number of times, they do a pretty good job. There's, there's always more you can do, but they, they really do have a lot of back-end systems and, and some front-end systems, too, to make to make sure that they're, they're doing their best, they're a good job cutting down. There's always more, but, but it's really, uh, education can really, really help. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. See, just to add on to what you said, you know, ID fraud changes so much every year. It evolves very, very fast. And we always urge bankers and the, the technology companies that provide the important solutions to make all this work to make sure they're up to date on, on the way that criminals have evolved their methods. Because if your view of identity fraud, you know, new account, existing account, card fraud, DDA, all that stuff, if it's based on the way criminals were doing the bad stuff they do a year ago, then you're probably missing some opportunities because it does evolve very quickly. So that was the purpose of this study, is to make sure people are up to date with how it's changing so they can be uh, keeping up with the bad stuff criminals do in order to protect the consumer. The, the criminals are really smart. And um, we have a lot of smart people in, in institutions, too. The difference is they don't have to play by the rules. And so it is, it is a constant job to keep up with what's going on and the new things in identity fraud, especially on the electronic side, as they find out new ways to get your information into their hands. And I was going to ask both of you whether or not you expect ID fraud to increase in 2011, if you expected it to worsen, and it sounds like that could be a potential. You know, I'm not a, I guess I'm not a prognosticator. Um, I don't... I don't know on a percentage basis if it's going to get better or worse. I do know that it's not going away, and I think James made a great point in that it's constantly evolving, and so it's really hard to put your finger on it, and that's what makes it such a difficult crime to really corral. So, um, you know, I, I do think that it, it will continue to live on, and I think there will be increases in categories, and whether it increases as a whole or not, I don't know that I have a, a you know, forecast, but I, I do know that, that it will continue on. Yeah, it's, it, it is always tough to predict the future, any kind of accuracy, but you know, if we look at the uh, this, this eight-year trend line, outside of the awful last two years that economically we've been through, we're seeing this very slow but, but significant decline over a number of years, and, and yet still, you know, three and a half percent of everyone in the U.S. being a victim of fraud and 37 billion in total, it, it adds up to an awful lot of, uh, of law of fraud amounts of crime that we're all paying for. So we expect to see, we're hoping for just steady losses. We hope we're, we're kind of um, getting solid with a number that's not moving around too much, barring some kind of a, a you know, awful double dip or, or some uh, new technology method that could give a short-term opportunity for criminals. So hopefully we're keeping it under control. And going back to some of the grassroots efforts that both of you mentioned earlier, talking about some of the community organizations that you're working with, I wanted to know what you collected or what kind of insight you were able to, to gather in working on this particular report for this year. When you talk to some of the consumer respondents, are they aware of legislative and grassroots efforts aimed at combating ID theft and ID fraud? And James, we'll start with you. 
approach. We didn't see in our study a, a significant amount of consumer awareness on on work that various agencies are doing. Uh, we we ha you know, they're certainly aware that their law enforcement agencies are uh, are there to help, but we also see that consumers have gotten a little bit burned out on going to law enforcement. And the challenge we see there is actually that law enforcement themselves don't get timely information. And so one of the things we're doing through this study is, thanks to co-sponsors like Intersections, is giving free copies of the full study to any qualified law enforcement agency. And, and that's important because you see some well-intended efforts that kind of make us cringe a little bit like shred days, you know, and if that's, if that's your big message in fighting fraud, they should take the paper to the, um, and get it shredded, you think that's, that's probably not a good idea. Because, for example, in that case, you should be telling people to turn the paper off so you have nothing to shred in the first place. Get it, get it out of the, um, get out of the mailboxes, and certainly protect your computers. So, yeah, consumers are, are a bit handicapped because they don't get clear information, they don't get consistent information, and independent information. So that's a, that's a tough area to battle. Sure. And Steve, how do you feel about that? Uh, Javelin did the survey. We didn't get to talk to, directly to the consumers, but I would just tell you that I think the grassroots efforts are, are in their infancy, um, and, and there are a significant number of people out there who are, are passionate about this and about educating consumers, and you know, we look for people um, like that, and, and we try to help them get their message out through, um, through sponsorships, um, through our social media efforts. You know, we're on Twitter and Facebook, and we have a blog, and um, you know, we just want to try and get the word out as much as possible um, and, and helping sponsor these organizations. Sure. And I wanted to ask, you know, we've talked quite a bit about how do we define ID fraud, what types of categories does it include. When we look at the financial industry, a lot of the onus then, of course, falls on the financial industry to catch a lot of this ID fraud. What steps should financial institutions be taking to help prevent ID fraud, and do you think that financial institutions will be leading the charge against ID theft and ID fraud? You know, it's, uh, it's an interesting quandary for financial institutions because um, what they really can do is make it harder to open up an account, um, more verification, take more time, maybe there's a waiting time. And, and the problem is that their job is to open up more accounts. Um, so it's a little, it, it's, it's hard for them. I mean, I think they are honestly um, interested in reducing fraud, but I think they're struggling with that, with that conflict there. Um, and, and, you know, I think the, the first one, for instance, that were to take a stand would be afraid that, you know, oh, now I'm going to lose customers to the other banks. And so I, I'm not really sure what the final answer is, but um, it, it's not, I, I think it's just not a simple solution. I think people often think it's a, it's relatively simple to overcome this, and I don't, I don't think that's the answer. I think people sometimes oversimplify it. It's a very complex problem with um, a lot of implications across many industries. And James, what's your perspective? Yeah, Tracy, I think you're, uh, you're I agree with your thought that, that the, the weight of the problem, of solving the problem, will ultimately fall on the banks, because banks are ultimately where criminals are going to. You know, even if the, the method of criminals' um, identity fraud centers around some secondary method before uh, they still ultimately have to liquidate that transaction, so to speak. So let's say they're buying fensible goods through an existing credit or increasingly a debit card transaction. 
like uh, office supplies or, or flat screens or whatever, they still have to somehow turn that purchase into cash, which brings it right back to the bank. So ultimately, criminals don't make money in identity fraud or security incidents of any kind unless they can turn it into cash. And you know, there's there's just a handful of methods, actually not many, that criminals can can use that that convert all that all those bad behaviors into cash. And so, what again, the purpose of this study is to help banks stay up to date on the latest methods, and to help them take a, a three-part strategy around prevention of the fraud, which is again so difficult around new account fraud because con consumers aren't getting those statements, like Steve said and to put solutions in consumers' hands. And if and a consumer are paying extra, if they choose to uh, pay extra to, to uh, protect their identity, which I, th I think a lot of people should. In certain cases, who better to get those solutions from than their financial institution, particularly as banks are trying to find fee replacement strategies. And then to take the best of new technology, like mobile, for example. I'm, I'm real excited about mobile and its potential to help arm and deputize the consumer, but of, of course, I'm very concerned about how things could go very wrong as well. So banks ultimately need to lead to this charge. And in closing, I'd like just to ask both of you what your final thoughts are when we look at some of these results and what you'd like to share with the audience about the report and its findings. And James, we'll start with you. You know, again, I, I think that there's a, a lot of opportunity around identity fraud to beat back these crimes. I mean, Identity fraud has grown a lot in the last decade or so because we've had um, frictionless commerce. And with frictionless commerce, you get more frictionless fraud. And then real-time information, and very factual information about how criminals do what they do and how they involve uh, the consumer in impersonating somebody else, which makes this, um, this, this family of crime and new accounts and existing accounts have such a pervasive and insidious form of cost impact to the banks. And we need to think certainly about charge-offs, but brand protection, and how we could be either creating new forms of revenue or bringing that into the bank, the, the consumer's generally most trusted provider of all those kinds of companies that, are, that are, exist in the U.S., and, and how we can protect the, the revenue share and keep customers longer. So we need to look at fraud holistically by understanding how it's changing and realize that the consumer is very motivated to take an active role. And if it ever looks like somehow they're showing you a different side the consumer, it's probably because we've made it more onerous for them to understand the educational messages and the advice we give them and how to use the new alerts or whatever it is. So get people involved because those individuals are, are fighting a common enemy on the part of the banks. Yeah, it's funny. My final thoughts, I think, are, are, are people will be a little surprised. I think that initially some folks would say, oh, intersections, how, how could you be happy that, that the crime is down because that's your business? But the truth is we're, I'm thrilled that crime is coming down because it means two things. It means that, um, that on the institutional side of it, people are more aware of it. They're taking more actions. They're being... Um, they're doing their job better, preventing the fraud up front, and it also means that consumers are are starting to gain an awareness. So criminals are still trying to perpetrate the fraud, but the fact that it's actually dropping means that the work that we're all doing is actually going to some good, and that the, you know, for instance, the products and services that we recommend and sell, and and people are using them for good cause, and they're helping to prevent and reduce some forms of of identity fraud. Some of them are going up, but others are not. And so 
So to me, that's that's you know when I look at this report and and saw the decrease, I thought that's good. We're 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 doing all this work and it's actually paying off. So that was that was sort of my my final thought on that. And Steve, the challenge that uh, that the industry faces is that the area in which we made the least progress is in new account fraud. I mean, our biggest gains were in existing account fraud. So we made a lot of gains in having fewer ID fraud victims this last year. Unfortunately, we made the biggest gains in the crimes that have the least impact on consumers and banks themselves. This new account fraud area is one that we really need a lot of renewed focus. I'd like to thank both of you again for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Tracy. Again, we've just heard from James Van Dyke of Javelin and Steve Schwartz of Intersection, which partnered with Javelin for the study. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.